I'm going to talk about some new findings in my field, which is comparative cognition, sort of interested in what makes humans unique. Um, and they're findings that I think are fantastically cool and that they might be redefining how we think about human nature, but first they're going to pose for us some really interesting new problems. Um, and I'm doing this in part because I think already having redefined human nature in the last couple years is sort of a tall order, and that scared me, and so I hung back a bit. Um, but also because I think the open questions about human nature can actually be more fun. Um, and I couldn't help but use this audience to kind of get some feedback on this stuff. Um, and so the findings in comparative cognition I'm going to talk about are often different than the ones you hear comparative cognition researchers typically talking about. Usually when somebody up here is talking about how animals are redefining human nature, it's cases where we're seeing animals being really similar to humans. So elephants who do mirror self-recognition, or rodents who have empathy, or capuchin monkeys who obey prospect theory, all these cases where we see animals doing something really similar. Today I'm going to talk about two sets of findings where we're seeing, at, at least in the case of non-human primates, non-human primates doing something really different than humans. In one case, they're doing something different than humans that you might think of as kind of cognitively less rich. Um, that leads to humans kind of looking like, wow, they're super smart. Um, but in a second case, they're doing something that looks like animals, and in this case, non-human primates are doing something that's cognitively a bit more rational. But I think it's going to also lead to some deep insight into human nature. Um, and so those were what I took my marching orders to be, and now I'll sort of jump into two sets of findings. Um, as I do that, I'm going to violate another principle immediately that John told me to do, which is to stick to questions and findings that are very, very recent. Because the first set of findings bear on a question that's in fact very, very old. And it's a question that Premack and Woodruff posed way back in 1978, asking the question of whether or not the chimpanzee or any other animal has a theory of mind. And what Premack meant by this question is, does the chimpanzee look out into its world and see all these agents just kind of behaving, doing different behaviors? Or do they do what we do, which is to intuit inside everybody's heads all these things going on, things like intentions and theories and beliefs and desires and so on. Um, and this is a very old question. As I said, this was 1978. Some of us around the table weren't born yet. Um, but some of us around the table, thankfully, were born yet and were writing important critiques of Premack and Woodruff studies. <laughs> Cough, Dan. Um, uh, which were really important to the field because it got off the ground this question of what could actually count as evidence for this question. We can verbally talk to each other and come up with the idea that we think of each other as having beliefs and desires, but how could you ask this in a non-linguistic creature? What would really count as evidence that they're thinking not just about behaviors, but about these mental states that are different from behaviors? Um, and Dan and people like Zen and Plushin and others um, and at the publication of this really important paper came up with a set of marching orders for the researchers of that time about how you could design studies to potentially tell the difference. Um, and that's what launched in the 80s this long field of what's been known as these false belief studies. I assume so most, many of you know about this, but for those that don't, please just kind of be patient with me. These are studies which are trying to look at whether or not people are actually representing the beliefs inside someone's head as distinct from their behaviors by using this sort of special funny case of false beliefs. This special case where people are acting, they're doing behaviors that don't necessarily match what you might see in reality. Um, so if I had a false belief that this event was over, I might do something crazy in my behavior, like get up, you know, take my microphone off, go inside, have a couple beers, and so on. And that would be different than what I should really be doing in reality, what reality should be telling me. But it'd be because there's this sort of false content in my head, this sort of false thing that's going on. Um, and cleverly, folks pointed out that if you really want to know whether an organism is representing behavior 
versus representing whether an organism thinking in terms of other individuals' behavior or thinking in terms of what's going on inside another individual's head. You have to use these creative kinds of cases where what they would do if they're monitoring behavior is different than what they would do if they were thinking in terms of what's going on inside somebody's head. So this launched this whole long uh, set of inquiry in the field of developmental psychology where I think developmental psychologists had a bit of a leg up on those of us who were comparative cognition researchers because they had the tool of language to ask children about different scenarios. And and this led to a long history of research showing that it seemed like there was some uh, important developmental changes over the first couple years of life in children's ability to think about what's going on inside the heads of others. Um, the comparative researchers, though, were a bit stymied, and they came up with a lot of experiments that even though they didn't have the fantastic commentaries that came after Premack and Woodruff's, I think if they had, people like Dan and Zen and Bush and others would say the same thing. These aren't good tests to really get at what's going on in terms of what other, individu- what other animals know about others' mental states. And this was sort of the state of the field well into the 90s until researchers started coming up with what I think are somewhat better tests that use these nice nonverbal measures to come up with good uh, tests of whether or not other animals have false beliefs. Um, and here's where I have to kind of give a nod to a conversation we were having earlier about the, uh, the Nobel Prize, um, which for those that don't know, watching this would be a potential prize that we're hoping someone out there will donate lots of money for. Um, so we could give prizes to researchers who, upon having evidence that their idea was wrong, admitted that their idea was wrong. Um, and here I have to give a shout out to one potential winner of this, who's Mike Tomasello, who in 1997 wrote a book that said, Uh, I don't think any other animal has any representation of other individuals' mental states. In 2003, he wrote a paper that updated that and said, because of new evidence, I have to say that I was completely wrong in that book. I published a book and I was wrong. Now there's good evidence that they do. Um, So what's that evidence? Well, the evidence comes from a variety of different tasks showing that other animals seem to process information about other individuals' perception or visual access. So one version of this type of test asks, do other non-human animals actually pay attention to what other individuals can see? So if you give them the option of trying to deceive somebody who's looking away versus somebody who's looking at a piece of food, what you find is on the first trial with no training, non-human primates know who to steal from. They steal from the guy who can't see. They also seem to know something about the fact that visual access passes into the future. So if somebody saw something at one point, you might recognize that that past visual access predicts that that individual might know something about what's happening in the future and therefore won't steal from that individual and so on. Um, So as Mike reported, we're starting to get more evidence that primates are doing better than we thought, but so far there hadn't been a really good test that would qualify uh, for the kinds of critiques that Dan and others brought up. Um, Until such time as a group of clever developmental psychologists came up with a very good nonverbal false belief test a nonverbal test that allowed us to show that babies might be representing something that's going on inside somebody's head. And we, as comparative cognition researchers, like it very much when developmental psychologists are clever like this, because when they come up with a good nonverbal test, we can then take it and do it ourselves and get the same answer. And this is what happened uh, a couple years ago when uh, Chris Onishi and Rosé Bayerjan came up with a good nonverbal test of false beliefs that they used in 15-month-old infants that we and others were later able to import to non-human primates. And here's how the test goes. So imagine that, that I'll say Danny in this case is either a monkey or an infant, and you're watching a display of me acting on the world. And later I'm gonna ask the predictions you make about my behavior. And you'll see me, this is again the spot where like with Nick you break down and if I had my PowerPoint it'd be so much easier, but imagine if you will that I have a PowerPoint that shows an image of me <laughs> with two different boxes where I'm hiding objects. And so Danny, just this casual observer, will be watching as I hit an object in one of these boxes. I'll hide it on the box on the left. And the question is just, where do you think I'm going to look? Well, if you were correctly representing that I had a true belief, you might expect me to reach over here. 
However, you might find it surprising if you understood my true belief that I would reach to the second box that didn't have this object that I desired. And it turns out that both 15-month-old infants and, in our case, uh, rhesus monkeys show that effect. If you monitor how long they watch this event, some sort of quasi-measure of their attention or their surprise, they look longer at this event where I reach in the wrong spot, suggesting they're tracking information about what I might know about the world and how I'm going to act. The question is, what happens in this critical case of a false belief, where reality should be telling me to do something, but my belief, if, I, if you understood it, would be telling me to do something else? So this would be a case where, again, two boxes, I would place an object in one box, and as I wasn't looking for various reasons, the object would move to the other side. Now, if you're tracking my belief, you should expect me to go to the box where the object was. But if you were dead set on the fact that you were analyzing my actions just in terms of my behavior, you might expect me to go where the object is because, of course, that's what I want. What do 15-month-old infants do? Well, 15-month-old infants, when they see me put an object here, they see it move to the other side, they expect me to reach over here, and they're very surprised if I reach in the wrong spot. And this was some of the first evidence that within the second year of life, babies might be tracking another individual's false belief published in science. This was a great thing. Um, what we did was to say, ah, this is a fantastic test. Let's apply this to our macaque monkeys. And I have to be honest, when we first did this test, I assumed 15-month-old infants are tracking this information. That's exactly what the monkeys are going to do. And so again, test is put the object here. Person's not looking. Object goes over here. And as I hit the button on the stats, you know, we had all our data in Excel, we entered in. As I hit the button to generate the means, I thought we're going to see one of two patterns. Either going to see that the monkeys look just like the babies, so they're surprised when I, when I don't act on the basis of a false belief, or we're going to see, as folks have been telling us for a long time, that the monkeys, unlike humans, aren't mentalists. They're tracking behavior. They should expect us to reach where the object is. And the thing that was really curious was that we didn't see either of those two <coughs> patterns. What we saw was that in both cases, the monkeys looked very little at these different options. So they looked very little. When I put the object here, it moved, whether I reached here or whether I reached here. And that was really different than what we'd seen in the other case. And we said, why? And well, what it looked like is that the monkeys aren't just behaviorists, in the sense. They're not just tracking what my behavior is. They don't expect me to reach where the object is. But the monkeys might not have a full-blown representation of another person's belief, the content of where it is. What it seemed that they were doing is they were tracking our visual access. We, as researchers, keep referring to this as knowledge, although we take that the philosophers will kind of comment on this. But they're tracking our historic visual access and expecting individuals to act on it. What happens when you lose that visual access is that all the representations go away. All bets are off. You're just ignorant. And the monkey might expect you, or Danny in this case, might expect you to look on the moon because you don't actually know where the object is. And so this was surprising to us because it wasn't the kind of result we expected. Um, and as we followed up on this, it turns out that the monkey system uh, for thinking about how we act seems to, again, not have any representation of others' beliefs, but seems to be relatively sophisticated in its own right. The first thing we've learned is that it seems to take into account uh, what other individuals' inferences are. And this is work not by me, but Mike Tomasello and his colleagues looking at the kinds of simple inferences you might make about where a piece of food is hidden. So they did this clever experiment with chimpanzees where they had a delicious piece of food that they hid behind a screen. And when they lifted the screen, there were two pieces of cloth on the table, one that was totally flat and one that was beveled exactly in the shape of the food. And they asked, can chimpanzees smartly make the inference that the food has to be hidden under the beveled thing? The answer is yes. Not so surprising, chimpanzees are pretty smart. The surprising thing is that chimpanzees can also represent in another chimpanzee that same inference. So if they watch a different individual have this test where they see a piece of food hidden, one is upright, 
they have the same intuition that the chimpanzee should search in that spot. The second, even more surprising thing we found is that the way the monkeys seem to shut off their inference about whether you have visual access or whether you have knowledge seems to actually be pretty sophisticated and seems to not bear on what you might expect from behavior. And so here's this test that we ran. Again, one of these situations, Danny would be watching me hiding different objects. You'd watch as I hid the object in this location, and just as I couldn't see, it popped right out and went right back in. So all the features of the world should tell you, where am I going to reach? I should reach over here. But this is not what we find in the non-human primates. What we find is that they, again, say, well, you lost your visual access. You should be ignorant. You could search on the moon. So even though all these features of the world are telling them the way we should behave, we seem to have this interesting disconnect. So why am I telling you all this stuff? First, I think we're finally getting some important insight into this age-old question that Premack and Woodruff gave us um, about whether or not other animals are mentalists. And I think the answer is that they don't seem to have representations of other, others' false beliefs, but they might not be as tied to behavior as we thought in the first place. The second insight, and the reason I think this bears importantly on human nature, is it seems like we have a phylogenetically old system to track information about individuals' visual access that seems to be present in monkeys, and we have no idea yet whether or not it's present in humans as well. By 15 months of age, babies seem to be tracking other individuals' false beliefs, but this raises this question of whether or not they have this other same system that's going on under the surface that's also tracking this visual access too. And I think that makes some interesting predictions about whether you get some disconnects between cases of these two systems, cases where uh, what you're tracking with this sort of phylogenetically earlier system tells you something different. Um, and I think those kinds of questions would be very interesting to explore and might redefine the way we're thinking about how other animals track other minds. Um, so that sort of set of questions, number one, um, which I in part wanted to tell you because I think uh, Mike Tomasella should win the Nobel Prize, and that sort of made my vote. Um, the second set of studies I wanted to tell you about I think are even more relevant for some of the stuff we've already talked about. Because I think in some ways they fall out of this case of us being a species that has a phylogenetically relatively recent system for representing others' beliefs. And the possibility, I think, is that when, you, when natural selection builds in new systems, they tend to be a little bit kludgy, and they might actually have some, some problems inherent in them. And so this raises the question of how we deploy our, our systems for representing others' beliefs. How is it that we look out into the world and think that Danny might have a certain belief about something, but he's ignorant about something else? How quickly do we deploy these things? And there's a couple different options. One is that we're kind of cognitively lazy. And we should only deploy these kinds of, of complicated systems in these cases where we really, really need to. So if Josh were to give me some complicated moral scenario about some guy knew something, but somebody had another belief, I would have to turn on all this machinery to make sense of it. But I shouldn't be kind of doing it haphazardly, just when there are kind of random things around the screen. The second set of results I want to tell you is that it seems like that's not actually the case. It seems like there might be some interesting automaticity to the extent to which we turn on our mind-reading abilities. And it seems like this automaticity might be different in non-human animals. And so this comes from a study uh, that came out by uh, Agnes Kovacs and her colleagues recently uh, in Science, where she was asking again about the automaticity with which we start thinking about another individual's beliefs. And it must have been the most boring study ever for subjects to do, because what it involved is just a subject, say Danny in this case, is just tracking an object that's moving behind an occluder. And all Danny's task was is to say when the object fell behind the occluder and the occluder went away, does he think the object is there or not? Just a basic visual detection task. And of course, since we're tricky cognitive scientists, what we'll do is have some trials in which the object looked like it went back there, but when the screen falls, it's gone. Right. And of course, even though Danny is 
a fantastically smart person, he's going to make errors and be slower when I mess with him in that way. And that's just what you find. No surprise there. The question is what happens in the case where there's another individual who happens to also be watching the scene, who has a different perspective than you do, who might even have a different belief about what you're seeing than you do. And the way Kovacs and colleagues tested this was to put a cartoon Smurf head on the screen. So the Smurf is on the screen while Danny's just doing this task. It's completely incidental. Subjects know the Smurf doesn't matter at all. But it sometimes shares Danny's belief. Sometimes it sees it go back there just like Danny, and then the screen drops and it's gone. And sometimes it actually has a different belief. Sometimes it turns away at this critical moment where the object moves. And the question was, even though this is a cartoon Smurf, even though it's completely incidental from the task, does it affect the way Danny responds? And I think the surprising answer is yes. What you find is that if the Smurf thought something was back there, even in the case where Danny didn't, he speeded up. So he doesn't take a reaction time cost for a belief that he would have had that was false. There's another individual in the scene who has that belief. What does this mean? Well, it means a couple mm. things. One is that we might be implicitly tracking the perspectives and beliefs of a variety of other individuals around us. Um, this is the thing that Ian Apperley and his colleagues um, have referred to as ultra-centric interference. We might be getting this interesting interference by other people's beliefs, other people's contents, even though we know them to be different from our own. Um, why am I, as a comparative person, telling you this? Well, we've recently been able to run a study like this in non-human primates. And what we find is that the monkeys are a lot more rational than people in this sense. They don't seem to be automatically computing other individuals' visual perspective, and they don't seem to get messed up. In this sense, the monkeys react as though if they saw the object back there, it's back there. If they didn't, it didn't. Okay? What are the implications for some of this stuff? Well, I really wish Fiery was still here, because one of the implications, I think, is that we might have automatic systems for tracking what other individuals know, and speculatively, I can extend this to what other people intend, what other people's attitudes are, and so on. These things might deploy automatically and be relatively under the hood in a way that we might not expect. But that's exactly the kind of mechanisms you might need for the sorts of uniquely human things Fiery was talking about, namely things like social learning, namely things like uh, picking up on others' reinforcement histories, all the kinds of things that humans do that we think of as unique might rely on this kind of kludgy mechanism where we just get interference with the contents of our own mental states versus somebody else's. Um, is this really true? Can we see any data that something like this might really be happening? And this is a sort of extra third line of comparative studies that are coming out that I'll tell you about, um, which is some interesting work on the cases in which other animals can socially learn from us and cases in which humans might uh, learn from others in a way that's less rational than other animals. Um, so one of the, the leftovers, uh, empirical results from the 1990s, is often folks think that other animals can't imitate. That's not true. They can actually uh, follow our own actions and imitate, but they tend to do it in relatively select situations. What are those situations? Well, it tends to be situations in which they themselves don't know how to do something. So if you give chimpanzees an opaque puzzle box and they have no idea how to open it, what they will do is they will watch how you open it and they will follow exactly what you do. If you give, in contrast, chimpanzees a transparent puzzle box and they can kind of figure it out, they just go on the basis of what they know. The critical question is, what I've just told you predicts that humans might do worse at this task. And this is what Vicki Horner and Andy White tested, where they gave these opaque puzzle boxes and transparent puzzle boxes to chimpanzees and children. And they gave them a demonstrator who wasn't a smart demonstrator, but who was doing something dumb. So imagine you see a puzzle box, you don't know how it works, but you see me take a tool and I probe into the top of the puzzle box in this little opening, and then I use the tool to open up a door in the front and I take candy out. 
to do as you know and gives this to children and chimpanzees. It's an opaque box. They don't know how this works. They do exactly what the human demonstrator did. They probe in the top and use it to open. Now the critical test is you bring out a transparent box and you can see that the box is just empty. All you could do is open the door and there's the candy. <laughs> but you see this demonstrator who painstakingly sticks a tool in the top, opens a thing. What do you do? Well, chimpanzees just cut to the chase. They just open the door and take the food. What do human four-year-olds do? They slavishly copy exactly what they've seen the human do. And you might think, well, the kid doesn't want to you know, annoy the human adult who's just been teaching them. Uh, a graduate student at Yale, Derek Lyons, did a whole variety of control conditions to show it's not that the kids think that this is normative. It's that watching an adult demonstrator has changed the way the kids think about the causal mechanism of this box. They think somehow, I don't know the causal mechanism, but you have to do this thing at the top or else you can't open it. Um, this is very profound, and again, it suggests that in some ways animals in their non-interference across mental states might be more rational than us, but I think this provides a powerful mechanism for teaching, a powerful mechanism for the kinds of reward structures that Fiery's talked about, and potentially a, a, a powerful mechanism to solve the chicken and egg problem that I was uh, uh, asking Nick about earlier, which is if we want to know why these crazy things transmit through networks, things like our attitudes or our, whether or not we smoke or whether or not we're obese and so on, it might be that if we're constantly walking around automatically having interference between other people's attitudes and beliefs, that's a really easy way for just being around some friend to transmit these kinds of things. Um, all of the stuff I talked to you about at the end has been pretty speculative, but this is exactly the reason I want to talk about this stuff in front of you guys. Um, I'm not sure if we followed John's marching orders to get deep insight into human nature just yet, but I think these new kinds of findings where we're seeing differences are pointing us to new directions, not just in the ways that humans might be unique cognitively, but the way these different cognitive mechanisms might play out in a broader context to allow us to do all kinds of uniquely human things like culture and so on. And so I hope just to kind of round out the discussion we had uh, last night at dinner, I hope I've posed some interesting new questions for you, given you some zany speculation, and talked to you about some spots where the jury is still out. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my bumper sticker these days is uh, competence without comprehension. Mm -hmm. The idea is that human comprehension is built up out of competences which are themselves relatively uncomprehending. And the Whiten result fits beautifully into that in that the, it even permits you to speculate mm -hmm. that it's an adaptation for cultural transmission that we are, we ape more than apes do. Yep. Uh, and this opens the gates for all sorts of advanced techniques that we can acquire and and then have in our toolkit that we don't yet have to understand. They, they they bring us benefits, and then we can build other things out of them. But we're not we don't require any level of comprehension in order to take them on, mm -hmm. and then they can help us. Uh, uh, develop comprehension later. Yeah, although I think with with the some of the other over-imitation results, you might need to amend the bumper sticker to competence, not comprehension, but then later comprehension. Yeah, because I, I think the powerful thing about some of these results is not just that the kids follow the behavior, it's that they develop rich causal explanations based on the fact that somebody had an intent to do something. Yeah. And so this is the thing I find most fascinating, is it's not just the behavioral transmission, 
what goes with it when you see an intentional human do something is the fact that it must have been done for a reason. There must be this explanation. And kids, based on this social input, are completely willing to override the physics. Um, one of the powerful uh, results that Derek has is he he asks the kid how this object, he asks separate children how this object works, and all of them are sharp enough to exactly know the physics of how this object works. You see a human do a dumb thing on this object, this kind of uh, strange thing that you wouldn't do, all of the kids override what they saw before, not just that you have to do it, but that this is how the object causally works. And they spin a ton of different interesting stories that don't make any physical sense to come up with how this works. So it's not, it's not just that you can get these things without comprehension, but seeing it builds in a comprehension that may or may not be accurate yeah. based on your, your knowledge. The thing, that was, the thing that you saying now that prompts the thought in me and that was also prompted by something June said earlier today was of course, experimentally, these are, these are fascinating things, right, to think about the way you're describing them. And the experiments are so fiendishly clever, like it makes me want to switch fields and, like, do these experiments. I mean, just amount of thought and creativity in making them. And, of course, when we do experiments, we isolate down to particular actions and so forth. So, but maybe it's the case that while it's seemingly, quote-unquote, irrational for the baby to behave this way in this clear puzzle box, in aggregate, it's better for the organism to do what the adults do. So, it, and of course, you know, it's like genes in competition, right? I mean, you can have, you know, quote-unquote dysfunctional genes or uh, emotions earlier we were talking about. I mean, there may be ways in which across time it makes no sense for you to be happy when the world is collapsing when we look at a single packet of time. But maybe on average, in fact, across time, maybe it's good for you to feel happy no matter what's happening. I don't know. I'm making that up. Mm -hmm. But the point is... If you expand your horizon, maybe it's no longer as crazy. I mean, right. maybe it's just my resistance to not wanting to think that chimps are smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, when you describe it as like they're behaving more rationally, yes, in this particular case, yeah. but maybe more generally, that's a price we pay. Right. for. So it makes a prediction about the, the kind of extended phenotype in which we humans find ourselves in, which is that uh, the social information we get is often pretty accurate. Right, that the pedagogy and sometimes we get, astray, yeah. and sometimes we can get led astray, um, and for the kinds of physical environments where we, at least as modern humans, find ourselves in, that's for sure true. Right, if I if I were just to use my lay naive physical intuitions to try to figure out this iPad, I would be completely screwed. But as soon as Josh like hits one button and does it, then I have insight into this. Um, and uh, when 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 Derek Lyons talks about some of these results, he always starts his talk with. Um, the, the latest, whatever the winning Rube Goldberg experiment is, and puts that up, and then a coconut. And he says, this is, the coconut is the most complicated thing in, like, the chimpanzee world. Like, this is, like, the causal thing that they cannot figure out, whereas we deal with these causal systems that are incredibly complicated. And he chooses Rube Goldberg to say, the beauty of these is that you can, you can with your naive physics, understand all this stuff, but that's, like, the teeniest, tiniest crazy causal system that we have to deal with as humans. We're constantly faced with the causal systems that we just don't have the ability to understand, but other people do. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing, the reason why I think this relates to fiery stuff, is that it might not just be for complicated causal systems. It might be for elaborate social reward structures, elaborate sets of goals and behaviors that you want to link together, but you yourself haven't done yet. Um, and I think it'd be really neat to look en masse at those kinds of cases and ask the question, um, do these kinds of low-level mechanisms work in all these cases? And they do they ultimately derive the kinds of smart answers you're talking about? Have you seen that, that YouTube video that went viral a year or two ago of a little baby, I don't know how old, holding a magazine, like an old-fashioned magazine, 
and going like this to try to make the picture bigger. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, they I have mean, to learn, you know. <laughs> the other thing that you get out of this is 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 the power of your social input. Um, I mean, one of the things that you're faced with if you hang out with toddlers who have access to iPads is just how incredibly reinforcing these structures are. And I think part of it is that they're, they're reinforcing in part for the kind of reason Fire was talking about, that you're getting incredible social input, that this is a reinforcing thing. They see their parents and caregivers around these objects interacting with them in a way that this is the more important thing than any food or anything. They're like the rats that were getting the cocaine <laughs> or the rats that are getting the iPad. Um, but the, the key is that the kids don't have to do that themselves. The inputs we're providing are getting sucked in in these rich ways and um, lead to some interesting issues. Yeah, just a quick follow-up on that. Yeah. So it seemed like the answer you were giving to Nicholas' question was something like, what we really want to do is understand the causal structure of some objects. But luckily, there are people around who already know it. We're just kind of using them as a means yep. to this very test. But I wonder if there's any evidence for that view as opposed to another possible view that it's not really as crucially important for us to get the right answer about the causal structure of this object. Mm. It's just to get along with other people. <laughs> and so what we're really concerned with is not... Um, using other people as a means to, under, to correctly understand the causal structure of this object, yeah. but interacting with other people and, and working with other people in certain ways. And even if we get the causal structure of the object wrong, if we connect up with other people by doing it the same way they do, we're right. better off. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we make really strong cooperators, even if we don't understand how like the blocks work, we still don't get like attacked or you know right, shunned so, or whatever. So yeah. Suppose yeah. I can have the option of getting it right, yeah. but everyone thinks I'm a weirdo, or getting it wrong, but everyone thinks I'm good. Maybe I'd be better off. Getting yeah. The wrong answer. Yeah. Well, the question is why it has to go with the wrong answer, though, right? So you could imagine a whole set of mechanisms of conformity that didn't go with the you know, competence plus comprehension plus comprehension extra part, right? You could imagine a whole case of conformity that um, was of the form, wow, like Josh is such a weirdo when he's opening the thing that way. I'll open it that way in front of Josh so he won't hate me. But as soon as Josh leaves, like that's it, because I know the fast way to do this. I just won't. I just won't test the waters of being a jerk in terms of my conformity. But that doesn't seem what, to be what kids are doing. So the, the fact that the, their causal analysis goes along with that suggests that it's not just about relating or seeming similar or setting up your in-group because we all do it the same way. The fact is that what goes along with it is a rich causal analysis that goes beyond what you might think just if we were trying to get along. I mean, maybe that might come along for the ride and so on, but I think we need an extra thing to explain why that part comes to. Um, and, and I think that's the nice thing about uh, some of these studies is that they've kind of controlled for that possibility. And the way Derek did it was really elegant. So the child comes in and they, they learn this task, they see the experimenter do things, and Derek, who's the experimenter, convinces the child that the experiment is totally over. So the child's like, oh, the experiment's over, kid gets their prize, everything's fine. And then Derek convinces the child that some emergency has happened. The emergency is there's a new child there, but they, we all forgot to check if the object was back in the thing. So somebody needs to open the object as quickly as possible while Derek leaves, and nobody's going to watch, but it's got to be incredibly fast, nobody's going to watch you, and like it's very, very urgent, and Derek runs out of the room. And what you see is not that the child drops doing the stupid thing, they just do it really fast and really <laughs> urgently. And um, so it, it doesn't seem yeah, like it's true. about just relating. It seems like it's really changing their comprehension. And I'm not sure why you get that part too. It's just about the relating. That's so clever. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I'm live.